podcast world. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and boy, do we have an episode for you today. Alongside me is your old friend from episode one, Mr. Osei Wright Alexis from Incentivize Network. Osei, welcome back, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for coming through. I know um, Zara couldn't make it here this evening, so we're lucky that you will come across here. I mean, we have a lot of testosterone in the room this evening, but <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, man. But here's why I think today will be a, a very special episode. Because not only is our guest today one of the only people I know to ever study aerospace engineering. <laughs> one of two. Not only has he been able to carve out his own little Silicon Valley in the Caribbean. He's bringing Silicon Valley to the Caribbean. Not only because of that, but this guy here is another alumni of St. Mary's College. <laughs> Big up CIC every time. All the Fatima men, Kiarasi men, turn off, turn off one time. <laughs> Good job there, Bray. Turn off like half a pot of skin. Schools. I think some presentation men in South. <laughs> Nah, I don't find like anybody pass the lighthouse is taken too personally, you know. Um, anytime you're from Presentation or George's or, you know, Benedict's, them men cool. They be cool with it, but from the time you're from Curious, he meant shoops it and turning off the radio one time. <laughs> Only the South contingent have their own little walkway. Well, right? exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah, not yeah. privated, but, you know. And yeah. of course, you make up the rest of the Caribbean. Yeah. So today we welcome Mr. Kyle Maloney of Tech Beach, First Media of Nova's Tech, and now Chef Mate. Yeah, Chef Made, Chef Made. Yeah, we just launched Chef Made uh, at the end of February, and we've been doing pretty well, actually. Um, coincidentally enough, just this morning, I wake up to a two-page spread in the Guardian reviews on on our company, and it was quite impressive for me even reading it. I'm like, wow, I didn't even have, like, I have so much that I, I want to fix and do with it that I was really, uh, I guess, humbled by reading such amazing reviews and as the owner of the company, almost feeling like a sigh of relief that they were the ones that got really, really amazing, <laughs> a really amazing experience because you know you have that sort of like 10% of people that didn't have as, as a great experience and you're trying to tweak to get to yeah. that 99% sort of delivery rate. Right. So, so yeah, so it was, it was... And that 10% is what will keep you up at night, right? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, you, you're delivering and 90% of the people are really happy. But that 10% is, was like, boy, I need to get this thing tweaked to lit, till it's literally like a 99% tending to 100. You know, you'll never be 100, but you want to get as close to it as possible. Yeah. Yeah, because 99 people could tell you, hey, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. But that one person yeah. who emails you, one person who calls you and complains, one person who goes on Facebook and, and gives you that one out of five rating. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. They'd be like, oh gosh, but how to, how to fix that, boy? Indeed. As the first rating you usually look at when you're reviewing something. So let me find the worst ratings to see what the worst experience was. So, you know, you want to make sure you, don't, you have as, as little of those as possible. Exactly. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So that's been, that's been doing really, really, really well so far. Um, and it's one of my most exciting projects to date. Actually, to be honest, like I'm excited about everything that I, I'm working on. And, and I guess that's what I've been blessed to, to, to experience from the perspective that I go after and choose things that really excite me versus, um, being in spaces that I'm not so excited about. So yeah, any day, anything I could be working on, I really have a general excitement about it. So today, 
Well, you're actually supposed to be joined by your brother, Nicholas. Yeah, right now we're dealing with a little a little crisis. It was a good crisis to have, actually. Um, we released our new menu, and we had literally like five times what we predicted that we would have had. Wow. So we predicted that, yeah, we, we thought that it would have gone to a certain peak of just about 300 meals. Yeah, we literally over a thousand meals. Like, it was crazy. And you are cooking this where? Yeah, so our model is that my sister is a chef. Um, and so she designs every single meal. And so she works with our kitchen partner um, to produce the meals at scale. And so she goes in with their kitchen staff and basically teaches them how to make the specific meal that we want to be made. And then once that begins being produced, she quality controls to ensure that every meal is produced the way that she envisioned it to be produced. So if you all need a, co- a quality control analyst, I can come in, you know, just, you know, just bring a fork and a knife and I'll be there. <laughs> well, see, you, I thought you don't want to work for nobody, you know. <laughs> I'll take that job. I'll take that job. That's, 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 that's fine. Man's free food. Everybody had to live, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you got to eat to live, you know. Um, yeah. right. So I was doing, so when I was doing my prep for this interview, expecting you and Nicholas. Normally what I do when I'm interviewing more than one entrepreneur from the same company or so, I would research them separately and it'd be, it'd be like researching, it'd be double the work, right? But when I started looking in, it's like, wait, hey, hold on. These guys went to the same secondary school. Same primary school. Same primary school, same secondary school. Same university. Yeah. Study the same program. Been living together for the same, uh, for him it'll be 29 years, for me it'll be... <laughs> the only time I ever lived alone was the first two years of my life. Wow. Okay. 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 And you guys actually worked at the same companies. Even like when you go to interview, they all go and sit down together. <laughs> they have to hire two people at once. Well, that's that's the next thing. Um, I never even went to interview. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's um, what that's what networking or what? No, I never had a job. So when you were a consultant for um, for this drinks company. Yeah, that was on my terms. So it wasn't that they hired me and uh, I was at, like, they had to pay NIS and, and that was the structure. No, it was always, uh, it was always a, a basis whereby these are the terms of the arrangement and this is what we'll operate with and this is the duration of the time and then that's it, you know? So that was by design, like, like what was the thought process, I guess, growing up? Or what was the advice you would have gotten along the way to be able to now sit and say, I've never worked or I never had a job? Like, how, you know, the average person growing up, you know, you have to get a job at some point and make some money and yeah. then start your life from there. So how, how how did that pan out for you? Especially after being so you know, well-educated. You know, it's the funny thing too. Um, Just recently, because I was, was now being recommended for, for another board within the government, possibly, can't disclose what is that necessarily, but government due diligence and due process is that they must receive a resume from everyone. I went to find my resume. The resume I could find was in 2007 in my communications class in university that I needed to learn how to do a resume. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I should have met a higher year with a resume. Same, same speed. <laughs> so, so the man is falling up with me. He's like, uh, Kyle, how long are you taking to send this resume? I'm like... Boy, if you only know, I had to start this thing from scratch. So my background is is, is this. Um, first off, uh, my dad is an entrepreneur and he's had multiple businesses in his life. And I am the first born of five. 
And in that way, my father really nurtured me throughout my entire life. And in nurturing me, he trained my brother and I to have a strong codependency on each other. And this sort of stemmed from lack of relationship he had with his brother, who was not too much in distance in age with him. His brother has a sort of very strong competitiveness with him that turned out pretty negative. And he didn't want that for us. And so he really drove that sort of that sort of bond between us from early on. Like we used to dress alike, we used to like force us to do every single thing together. Right. And then that led on to my three other sisters. And so we have a very, very strong family bond as a result. You know, up until two minutes ago when you told me <laughs> that you're two years older than Nicholas, I thought you guys might have been non-identical twins. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, we're, we're two years apart. But in reality, um, in life experiences, we're the same age. Yeah. And so, so my dad drove that. And so he's had multiple businesses in his time. And so he's always driven the mindset of finding a need and fulfilling it in some way. And his speciality has always been trade and uh, within the last decade or two, uh, construction, but it's always been trade. And so he drove that in us. He's like always with the mindset of find something to sell, find something to sell. All right. With that sort of mind frame in primary school, I was selling like back in the days, it was um like Lisa Frank color pencils and, and stickers and them kind of things. Was real get trendy. sales and stuff. Yeah, bro. Like I used to leave school. I used to go to Bl- Blackman's private school in Marival and go up by the drugstore. And you're not allowed to. So I had to sneak out. So I sneaking out and going up by the drugstore after school, buying a bunch of Lisa Frank gear because the girls was real on that kind of stickers and thing gear, right? So I used to go up there. My parents used to give me like, like $10 or $20 a day or something like that. Something in between there, right? And I used to not buy food to go and buy Lisa Frank stickers and, and we used to call it them folders and things like that. You put, put your paper in and thing, buy wherever I could have buy, come back in school and resell it to these kids. Right? So you would resell it at a profit after you get the original product walking distance. Exactly. And, and they would exactly. pay. Exactly. They're taking their lunch money and paying me for these stickers and these color pencils and these pens and these things I buy it, you know? So, so I, I go in up there and as a, as a, as a little boy buying all these gaily looking things, I come back with, with unicorn and colorful unicorn and, and all kind of things these girls is like, because these girls are the ones that get only most hype for it. And obviously, well, as a little boy attracting the girls a little bit, you know? Uh, so I was wondering, I was wondering, <laughs> I was wondering it took a while to get to that, 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 that yeah. point. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so from that point, man, like from from that point on, like it, it was just like always figuring out what the market needs and and how can I solve that. And in, then secondary school, it was a similar similar space, um, but not as aggressively um, because there was real trying to lock us down. Kickman can even survive in his school, you know. All you remember Kickman, exactly right. <laughs> real shutting shutting down entrepreneurship in CIC. I unfortunately, break my wallet several days in a row. Right. So, so I was, I was a little bit, a little bit more conservative within CIC. But then when I got to university, it was at the point of when uh, Facebook and Twitter was now starting. And that was like, we are now pending to like a new sort of online boom from that perspective. And in my second semester of university, together with my brother and two other friends, we founded this company called Eagle Trade. So the logo for our university that I went to is an eagle. So name university is Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And so the logo is an eagle, right? And so we call the company Eagle Trade. So eagle because of the university and trade because of what we facilitated people to do. And so what we realized is that specifically focus first on books is that 
if your semester is finished and you finish it a book to go sell your brand new book back to the bookstore, they're going to buy it at a significantly reduced rate, right? But if you sell it back to a student, you could sell it back more to them, yes. but still they could buy it still less than the bookstore. So you sell it at 80% of the cost rather than 50%. Exactly. The- and for the student, they still gain it less than if they go to the bookstore. Right. So we began facilitating a trade network that would allow students to buy and sell the books between each other every single semester. Because our university is ridiculously expensive as well, too, now. And so... I mean, you're studying aerospace engineering. Right, yeah. No, but but aside from the degree in itself, our university is known to be pretty expensive. And not so much necessarily from just doing a degree, but there's a track called aeronautical science, which pilots do, right? And it requires pilots to do two things, get a degree and get flight hours. And so their end year spend on tuition would literally be twice a normal spend. So they end up spending something like 70,000 US a year in tuition, right? And pilots made up a large chunk of our of our student populace, as you can imagine. And so understanding those things, they tried to to not be too stringent on other things that would cause uh, university life to be expensive. And that's where you came in. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the and, research is like, okay. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, so yeah. so understanding market need, people trying to find ways to, to save money or spend less, and it's tough for them to be there in the first place, um, something like this definitely thrived. So our university population was pretty small. We only had a 5,000 campus. And so it made it easy for us to quickly be viral before virality was, was a thing in that sense. So it made it easy for us to be viral by literally being in uh, the... the the major stopping points of students and telling them about what our platform was about. Um, and it made sense. It filled a specific need. And so students began not only selling books, but they sell their skateboards and they sell their bikes and notices for rooms. So it was like a, it ended up being like a mini Craigslist just for our university. And so from that, our university was the center point, like a major a revenue generator for a lot of the businesses within that city. And so we began taking advertising dollars from these businesses. So Wow. As students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we generated about two to three thousand US a month. And we didn't really have any real costs. So that was just money in our pocket. Can I put you on the spot though? Yeah. Did you um pay taxes or were you on oh, the, yeah, under course. the table? Oh, no, 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 of course, of course, of course. So that's the next thing too. Feds we, watching. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. no students, like, you know, international students at least, not supposed to... Uh, right, so I mean, just... our two partners were two Americans um, okay, you. Who, who, interestingly enough, were studying aviation business management. So for them, this was like a school project in, in itself in practical practical terms, you know, like a lab, but in real life. And labs are supposed to be a mirror of real life. So these guys were doing this for real life. And so we met them at this club called the Collegiate Entrepreneurship Club. And even though we were studying engineering, we were really, really focused on on business and trying to like figure out like how to start businesses and how to fill needs from that perspective. So that's where we met these guys. They actually led the the corporate secretary type work. So registration in the company, filing the taxes, filing the annual returns, and assigning to us what we call the equivalent of a social security number, which is ITIN number, some sort of American tax sort of thing that was specific to us because we weren't... Eight, ben, something, something. Yeah, 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 exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, you know it, you know it, right? And that's assigned to us as we were not Americans and not necessarily legal to work. And so we did everything by the book such that I'm not going to end up rich Miami. And you don't know there's already gone railroaded in Miami. <laughs> so... 
But you see right there, you see how the mindset is, right? He leverage resources to make it happen. When I was in school, trainees were like, well, we can't work. We just, you know, we just have to, we have 20 hours a week. So we just work on campus. And that's it. We ask mommy and daddy for money. And these guys beat the system in, in essence. And so that you're seeing the difference in the mindset automatically. I, I like that. Yeah. Almost similar to what you did in terms of your cooking and your meals and stuff. <laughs> never mind (laughs) okay so did that did that business survive your graduation no so upon leaving we started well actually upon coming to the close of of the time there started doing a lot of introspection and realizing like we actually weren't passionate necessarily about like serving college students because that's a lot of what our mantra was now we're here for you build this thing for you students blah 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 and we're like when we leave here like deuces yeah deuces you know like i didn't really want to to be tied to here too much you know and so once we left um there wasn't like a a air to take over the the business processes and and the relationships and so because your business partners were in your year group as well yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and that was that and so with that mind frame, we decided, and all throughout university, I had my two other friends that I went to CIC with as well. One guy that went to UE and then he went to London School of Economics. And then my other friend that went to University of Cambridge. And so all throughout, we were in contact and they began their own services in London as well. A similar kind of vibe. And with that sort of mind frame that the four of us had, we took that and, and instead of going to get jobs, we came back home to begin building companies. Right. And that is how we got to first. Actually, that's how we got to Novus. <laughs> oh, Novus was before first. Yeah. First is actually second. First was second. Yeah. <laughs> um, and first was only second because, well, first was actually first in ideation, but in execution, it was second. Okay. All right. So what is Novus about? Novus. Yeah. So... When we came back home, we had grown accustomed to utilizing websites for a lot of different things. Like you reach home after a few years being away, you're a little bit disoriented about where something's at. Some changes happen or whatever. So you want a new barber, you have a car now, you want certain things fixed. You Like, you know, you want to find where the new shops are, where you get different things and for everything, when you was in the States, you had like an application that could help you find things. So back then was Yelp or even Yellow Pages, you know. But in Trinidad, we just really didn't have an application that allowed us to find these businesses in any sort of good manner. And even when you find them, like, how do you know what is good? So it's a very like trial and error kind of process. So with that, that is what drove first. Um, but we didn't have a name for it. And so we was like, we need like a better Yellow Pages, you know. We need a better version of that. And... In doing, beginning to do research around what it would take to build something like this, we realized that it would be pretty costly. And so we then began trying to figure out, okay, we need a cash cow. What is going to be our first business that's not going to take up too much energy from us, but could generate some good cash flow for us such that we continue to invest in this first thing. And the four of us spent one entire summer doing a lot of research in terms of plausible business models for this market we took a real sort of engineering research approach to it four of us having engineering backgrounds we literally began outlining top trending industries globally and then we did a matrix of understanding the applicability of it within this region and so we scored it 
And then from scoring it, we said, how are we uniquely capable to execute within these industries? And we scored that. And then we came out with four different industries that we were, we were thinking that we wanted to get into. Um, and yeah, it was very, very, a very sort of like nerd-like approach to it. I love how you engineers always talk about a systematic approach. You know, I come up with ideas in the shower. <laughs> yeah, so... So yeah, so we did that and we came out with, with four industries. And one of the industries was the renewables, energy, efficiency, sustainability industry. And interestingly enough, my uncle, my mother's brother, was now getting into that space as well. And so um, I guess we happened to have the interests matching at the same time. And he doesn't live here. He lives in the US. And so he wanted to begin getting in that space within the Caribbean, specifically starting in Trinidad. And we began having conversations around the space and what we think the company could be and where we could go. And boom, uh, we started with that in 20, 2010. And then 2011, we began pursuing hard and we got our first contract from Republic Bank in 2011. And we did it at no cost to them. My uncle fronted most of the cash. The approach that we took was that we front the cash for the first one to prove. And then once we prove it, we're going to do all the rest of your buildings. Okay, and so you so, funded your proof of concepts. Yeah, exactly, right? And so Novus is a company that focuses on making buildings more sustainable and energy efficient. And so what that means in simple terms is that we reduce clients' energy bill. Or as they say in Trinidad, we cut down your light bill, right? You know, you so, send some LED lights upstairs. <laughs> yeah, up yeah, yeah. In the cabin yeah. studio. Good. Novus, Novus. Yeah, you purchased from Novus? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, so I purchased them from um, Davis Eco Life. Big up within Davis episode eight. <laughs> All right, yeah, Novus doesn't focus on uh, residential mining means. Novus focuses all on, entirely on commercial, yeah, because it gives us immediate scale. You know, the size of projects are just bigger, like automatically, right? Um, you know, buy what six bulbs here. How much bulbs I need to sell to make any real money, right? Yeah, and on top of that, like these LEDs, and so the lifetime warranty on these things is meant to be longer. Right. All right, and so when you're not replacing that for like what three to five years, when next I'm making money from you. I had to come here and bust your bulbs to make some more money. <laughs> Plus, even gave us gave me a deal. Um, I gave him some rum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So we got there with Republic Bank, and then once we did that proof of concept, boom, we automatically began negotiation for the rest of the buildings. And so our next contract in 2012 was with uh, 13 of their buildings across four of their territories. And that was our first major project then one time. It was quite significant in terms of revenue. And that's when I think we made the official serious jump from being students trying to figure out a transition to now like setting up and running our full-fledged business. So there was no like um, hardcore marketing strategy there or was it just oh, no, no, no. people was, came to you just because they needed to reduce right, no, their No, this was straight B2B. This was straight B2B. And we were blessed that my uncle did the initial groundwork and, and got his client. And then we supported in the execution. And then I brought on my two friends, Kiva and Issa. Once we had the agreement for the rest of the buildings at scale. And so we brought them on and we began running and we executed it uh, pretty flawlessly. Upon that, we began getting, I guess, calls from more clients within the banking space and insurance space. And that's just kind of how the domino began to fall. Quick question though. That was your first experience back in Trinidad. What was your biggest learning experience going through that process and getting a client, getting the check? What was your biggest learning experience at that point that you would 
kind of hold on to moving forward? Was the reward for being really prepared and being really bold. At that point in time, the older heads would look at us and say that, boy, well, they don't need to do all that and that and that and that. But I think that is what really differentiated us in that we overanalyzed, overprepared, over everything in the initial stages. And it was almost two things. It was almost to prove to ourselves that we were ready and to prove to the client or the potential client that we have thought about this in great detail such that they feel really comfortable because especially coming in at that point in time. So this is now 2011, 2012. So this is like seven, six and seven years ago, right? At that point in time, I would have been uh, seven years ago, I'd have been like 24, right? So you give in these youngsters and I remember it would have been 22, all right? So 22 and 24, you giving these youngsters so much money and so much, I guess, control to execute these projects at this scale, like it kind of seems absurd. Like, I don't think I'll even give my sister who's 21, you know, projects at the kind of scale that we began getting. And so for us, the lesson that, that, that we learned there was, was the value in being really overprepared and really taking things more, more seriously than it actually required looking back at it now. But then I think we were really just trying to prove ourselves in this space. At that point in time, like, uh, that's when we were wearing blazers all the time. You I know? remember that. I remember I was yeah. like, these guys are sharp. Yeah, right? So was that part of your branding? Yeah, no, that was definitely part of it. That was part of it. It, it was from the perspective that we took ourselves really seriously. And then in turn, the clients took us very seriously. They saw us definitely as very young, sharp entrepreneurs. So at least I'd hope so. And so that's what I'm attributing to some of the uh, success that we would have would have achieved, right? Um, and to our peers, we would have seemed like absolutely unnecessary. Who are these guys that were in places all the time? You know, like it's totally unnecessary. But I guess this is what differentiated us. This is what helped us stand out a bit. This is what caused people to listen to us a bit more. I don't know, whatever it is, right? There's a combination of things. So people initially judge it from out, your outward appearance before you even begin to speak. And so they begin kind of judging from that point on until they realize what you're saying may be smart. And then they begin actually listening. But we tried to a little bit short-circuit the learning curve compared to looking like the average 22 and 24-year-old who kind of just still about kicks you about life and not too sure and, you know, have no respond real responsibilities yet and that kind of thing. We try and short-circuit that a little bit by appearing like we're really, really serious about life, which in reality we were, exactly. Yeah, what's interesting is that, so I feel like that's, partly a Caribbean mindset in a way because when you look at Silicon Valley and stuff you see a lot of CEOs who are in their early 20s and mid 20s and everything <laughs> can't say that <laughs> what's that? you want to edit out? <laughs> like white privilege <laughs> yeah. snip <laughs> I was kidding you, yeah, you talk your mind <laughs> no I like alright if, if we be in frank about it think about it think about your top tech companies what do they look like? What do the leaders of these organizations look like? Apple, yeah, white man. Right. Facebook, white man. Twitter, white man. Tesla, white man. Who are you thinking? Call, call. Call your big tech companies coming out. Coming out. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, white man. Call. Microsoft, white man. Call. Find, tech find beach, them. Tech beach, tech beach. All right. All right. All right. No, no. I'm talking about, I'm talking about out of Silicon Valley, right? Out of yeah, Silicon sure. Valley, right? And so I said that not to 
not to devalue their contributions by any means. Like these are by far like literally the pioneers of the technology industry. But Silicon Valley knows it. It is a boys club. You know, it is a boys club who now is coming to to a realization. I wouldn't even say necessarily a realization. It's now being pressured to quote unquote allow more people to play in their club. And that's what it is. And so the boys club would have stemmed from universities like Stanford, USC, and University California, Berkeley, and these sort of sort of universities. These boys come together, they start these companies funded by other successful boys within the industry that all look like each other, and they achieve a certain level of success and it becomes something that's global. And how the industry has evolved is such that you align a certain type of success with someone that looks like this. It's like profiling automatically. You see a person that does not look like that, probably not going to be successful. You see a person come in looking like that? Ah, yes, that's probably going to be success. And it is not always like overt. It's many times a a non-realized bias. And well, I would like to think so, you know, but quite frankly, I also believe that in many instances, in most instances, it it is an actualized bias. Yeah, it's a realized bias that is now, the dynamic is now shifting a bit and the conversations are happening where they're talking about more diversity in the valley and how much diversity does your company have and, and these sorts of things, founding black owners and founding uh, diverse owners, founding women, founding LGBT and, you know, like those conversations are now happening. But in that space, I think they were just looking for specific people and it doesn't matter what they like come dressed looking like. All that matters is that they look this way. But there's a school of thought, though, that says that as a black person operating in that space, you always have to go above and beyond in terms of how you look and how you present yourself to even just get up to the minimum basic standard that they might want to, to expect, right? So, for example, I went to Howard, a black school, and when we interviewed to go on Wall Street and try and get jobs, etc., they had classes on like, okay, I'll call it like black etiquette class for interviewing. You know, yeah, yeah, you have to be clean shaven. You have to wear your suits sharp all the time, you know. And that was the, the minimum entry point into even being considered. That was the mindset that they tried to create, right? So the question is, do you think that that works for or against you in the Silicon Valley environment? Should you, as a black person there, ensure that you're always sharp, you're always standing out, you're always looking the part or... Do you think you should try and blend into the casual kind of laid back look and feel just to not be different? I don't know. Like, what do you think about that, that phenomenon? Okay. So each of these cities uh, have their own sort of culture that go along with it. And so New York is the finance capital and the Wall Street and that sort of thing. And so their look and culture is, is significantly different from the West Coast, California. And I think climate plays a lot to do with it. It's just sunnier and brighter over there. So whatever drives the culture difference is significantly different. So in New York, you really want to be standing out and dressing really well and that sort of thing. In San Francisco and in California, with the exception necessarily of LA, but if you're in a tech space, it may be a little different. People generally dress super, super laid back, super, super laid back. And when I initially went there, uh, my first trip to San Francisco um, in 2016 or 15, yeah, I carried me my four blazers and trying to dress super fresh and went to Zara to buy some more and that kind of thing. And immediately people are like, 
yo, why are you dressing up so much? Um, trying too hard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You come across immediately as trying too hard. And then one of my friends joke, there's this joke uh, that they run within themselves. is like the person who dresses the freshest is the person with the smallest pockets in your room. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you could see that from the wealthy tech guys that lead the space, you know? Yeah, you're not getting fashion tips from Mark Zuckerberg in his hoodies, right? Yeah. Steve Jobs, yeah. Steve Jobs in, the, in the black, you know, the black outfit, the uniform. Right, his turtleneck and, yeah, his, yeah, and yeah. his dad jeans and yeah. his sneakers, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This man is giving his marquee annual presentations, you know? And he's wearing his turtleneck with his dad jeans and his big white sneakers or whatever. I feel like that's part of his branding too, though. Like, see how you guys at first, you had your extremely fresh branding. I think, I guess it's also environment too, like, which just kind of lending to your point. Yeah. So you guys are in the Caribbean and stuff, you know, we, as Caribbean people, we're a little more flashy, we're a little the more traditional, I think, we're more traditional. So we're still in the suit and tie, uh, for business meetings, maybe, or at least we, Came down from suit and tie to just blazer and a, and a, and a nice shirt, maybe. Yeah. But we still lace hotter. Yeah, <laughs> you know I was yeah, saying blazers. Exactly. You see exactly. them walking through Port Spain, you and, know, sometimes. And, and that's the effect of what they call, what is it called? Post-colonialism. Yeah. Where you're still adhering to a structure that was built not for us and not by us. Right. And so we're still adhering to that because at the top, the structures still have a very much semblance of what history has been. And so we don't dress for practical reasons of how we are. We dress to support a system that has been. And in actuality, recently I've been subconsciously pushing back on that green. I say subconsciously because I didn't say, well, I'm going to start going to my meetings in slacks and sweater. But recently I've had a bunch of meetings back to back and I happen to live in Port of Spain and a lot of my meetings are on Skype. And I kind of dress casually all the time, generally, these days, um, because I'm home more and I'm not in an office and I don't have to meet with people with any finance sector as much. Uh, these days, there's a lot more marketing people, and so they're more chill. So I began dressing more chill, and coming from that San Francisco space of generally now, like, buying chill clothes, I kind of just bring that same sort of energy to Trinidad in the way that I dress now, these days, compared to how I was before, and so... Now, interestingly enough, what is happening is this, is that I went to a meeting recently and they're like, oh my God, Kyle, you came in like joggers, a sweatshirt and sneakers or whatever. And then somebody else chimes in. He's like, oh yeah, that's the tech guy. And that's how they are, <laughs> you know? It probably helps that, that the popularity of the Silicon Valley lifestyle is, is, is infiltrating the country now. People knowing more about that lifestyle and that, that sub-economy up there. So it's just becoming more accepting. You know, we like to take on whatever happens. Uh, yeah, there, you know? exactly, so, exactly, exactly. You know. So yeah, and, and even in Tech Beach, I tried to drive that sort of, a little bit of a casualness to the look and feel like nobody's in suits, for sure. Generally speaking, actually, like the bankers in the room end up coming in suits. But generally, we try and be like, the dress code is casual, like you're literally on a beach, you know, like. So we try and drive that. And at the conference itself, in terms of the sessions, this year I wore a jogger's, t-shirt and a sort of like slack blazer and my other co-founder your brother no no nicholas actually not actively involved in tech beach okay. um my other co-founder kirk anthony hamilton okay. there's actually three of us um and my other co-founder a guy from london a zimbabwean from london actually his name is uh, phineas mapofu 
Yeah. Do you able to say it so easily the first time? <laughs> no, no, no. I usually just call him Finn. <laughs> nice. So yeah. tell us about Tech Beach. Like, just for the listeners out there who may not yeah. be familiar with it, what is it all about? Why they decided to embark on that project? How were you able to execute it so seamlessly? Because you were able to get some high-profile speakers from companies like Amazon. You got the CEO of Twitter and stuff. So how were you able to put together all of that so seamlessly? Yeah. So Tech Beach is born out of an impetus whereby my co-founder, Kirk Anthony, from Jamaica, he's been having business-focused conferences for the last few years, and he wanted to get into the tech space. And within the tech space, I had, together with my team, we created a name for ourselves within the tech space through our initial company called First, right? We could get into the story of First uh, in a little bit. Oh, of course, we're getting into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So he reached out to me based on based on me having relationships within the tech space there to help him have this conference. And initially at that point in time when he reached out to me, I was in a very like low point, uh, pretty stressed and not really, really motivated to do anything except like figure out what to do now with this transition and that's happening with first. And so initially I was like, well, listen, I'll try and help you or whatever, but don't expect too much. I'm in San Francisco now, so I'll begin working on bringing some speakers here from this space. That quickly evolved to me now playing a, a more significant role than I'd initially like fathomed, whereby I really wear this Tech Beach brand on my chest. And the drive for Tech Beach really is came out from the experience with first, from the perspective that we want to develop a technology ecosystem in the Caribbean that would enable two things to happen. More innovation happening at scale from the larger companies, like the banks doing a lot more things within the finance space that would make transactions and life a lot easier for us. That doesn't really happen at any kind of rate, for example. And then in tourism, like helping to transition tourism into a more digital space and that sort of thing. And then on the startup end of things, give startups more of an environment that would increase the likelihood of their success. And what that would mean from an environmental perspective are things like mentors, potential partners that would allow them to scale, potential alternative forms of investment that don't necessarily just look like the current investment landscape. So investment coming in from companies outside of the Caribbean, because it's not impossible, you know? So that is what our drive for Tech Beach is about. It's really about developing this entire ecosystem that startups could come and begin thriving. You know, like right now we just have a an ecosystem that like we only have like sparks, 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 sparks of companies trying to do things, but they're never able to achieve that level of scale. And and we wanna bring that gasoline and such that when there's a spark. <laughs> yeah, you could just throw fire on that and let it blaze. But I have a question though. Um, it seems to be a difficult, for me, my, mentally, it seems to be a difficult prospect to marry the two types of technology uh, drives that you're, you're focusing on with Tech Beach, right? So yeah. on one hand, you have, as you mentioned, the uh, the banks, the tourism type industries, the the older players who yeah. whose needs and whose ability to be flexible with technology is, is completely different from the, the startup type culture and all that. Do you think it's a wise proposition to try to marry the two in one event? Because 
I feel like those are two separate events. You can have a whole tech arena specifically for existing snails. Let's call them snails who just don't really, <laughs> you know, slow to adopt, slow to be able to switch and change into the technology. Yeah. And you can have a whole next space just for the startups. I mean, what, how, what was you thinking behind marrying the two and, and trying to get everybody under one roof? Um, the thought is, is simply this. In order for these startups, in order for many of these startups to survive, they need clients, right? And these clients are some of these big boys. And these big boys, in turn, need and want innovation. And so the innovation inadvertently does not come internally. What happens a lot of the times internally is hamster on a wheel. They continuously keep running and running the same playbook all the time and just trying to continuously squeeze as much profit out of the same model, which is why many times you just need consultants to come in while you're on your hamster on a wheel to begin looking at your thing from a bird's eye view and whatever, you know? That's similar sort of sort of type of thing with, with the startups. We want to have the conversation around innovation and have the startups that are innovative be there to have the direct relationship with the businesses that can then buy their service or product, you know? The ecosystem in itself. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So the, so, the, so the ecosystem is not one without the other. They're all part of the ecosystem. And so our goal with Tech Beach is about bringing all of the pieces of the ecosystem together in one place such that they can have real conversations with each other and have real practical outcomes. And that's the toughest part. Like the toughest, the tough part is by no means putting together a conference and bringing uh, nice brand names and people or whatever. Like, quite frankly, it's fun for me to do. Like, I love being on a plane and going to meet with people that work at these amazing companies and doing amazing things with their life. Like, that's quite really fun. Yeah, just kind of map that out first. How did you be able to get all of these guys to come down to Jamaica to give a talk? Yeah. Without charging you a huge bill all right so so i can speak for me kirk is ridiculously amazing at doing this quite frankly pound for pound i think he's the best in your region at being able to bring high profile people to the table he's a writer and so he has a, a gift for both writing and speaking and he has a unique vision for the caribbean a narrative that any i guess sensible person could believe in so He's the one that really drove the initial base of relationships. Mine stemmed first from relationships I built with a Trinidadian in a very senior position in AT&T in San Francisco. He was the senior director of big data for AT&T. And upon meeting him through one of my CIC brethren, Mark Moyu, Mark met him at a conference he went to and Mark was like, you need to meet my friend Kyle. We met on Skype and then he's like, bro, listen, I'll meet you when I come for tr Christmas. And then when he came for Christmas, then I went and hung out with him in San Francisco and he just began infiltrating me into a lot of networks that you would have had at that senior level. And from there, I took the vision of what we're trying to do and the mission, noble, as they would say, mission of what we're trying to accomplish that goes way beyond us. And there's a lot of numbers, you know, like we ended up getting like, 30 something people our first time and we would have spoken to over 100 people and what people generally bought into is a market that they generally not in just giving up a weekend you know we're not asking much of people so the event is on a 
is on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So, and is coming down to Christmas. So the year winding down for them already. So we utilize some of the things that we had at our advantage. The experience we're bringing them into is an all-inclusive resort. And so the quality that some of these executives will be coming into, they don't need to feel like it's going to be a little offbeat for them. Uh, they go into a, a country that is one of the top country brands in the world. Uh, within the Caribbean, for sure, Jamaica, I believe, is like the number one brand in the Caribbean. And Definitely. That, that goes for English and Spanish speaking. Yeah, you know, they have Bob Marley and Usain Bolt, you know, like one of the greatest musicians of all time and the greatest printer athlete of, of all time ever. And then a bunch of people are fallen between that um, because like, you know, people like Sean Paul and Shaggy not like chumps, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, so those sort of pieces to the puzzle helped significantly and us being able to articulate it well, uh, well enough, I guess, helped drive these people to this place that they wouldn't a lot of them would have not been to before to a conference that they never heard of and we were able to achieve that great great you're speaking and um i'm thinking like maybe you may get to this later in the interview in terms of advice and all that but i'm thinking that for somebody who you know went to school in trinidad probably went reached as far as barbados for a holiday the, the scope of, of what you're talking about there seems almost out of reach for 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 the average person might be listening to this now. It's like so it's clear that the international experience would have planted the seeds that could drive now these kind of moves, right? The confidence, yeah, yeah. the the know how, the ability to, you know, morph into different beings. So so for somebody who's who's just, you know, in Trinidad, probably reading the internet, the success stories of these big companies wanting to try something, where do they even start to begin to, you know, take those kind of steps that you've been talking about for most of the evening though? What do you think about that? Um I don't know how to articulate giving necessarily practical advice, but some of the things that initially come to my mind are being bold and unafraid of being uncomfortable in situations I and mean, being out of your comfort zone and being willing to adapt to situations, focusing a lot on, on understanding social cues and social dynamics such that you're able to quickly build relationships these are some of the things that i try to be good at i wouldn't say necessarily i'm the best but i try to really focus on a lot of those things and having a strong why that's the most important thing quite frankly having a strong why you know like you could be not so bold not have great social dynamics or whatever but have an amazing why and you'll realize that people will just begin being drawn to you because purpose drives progress right exactly 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 and so, as the great Simon Sinek <laughs> um, said, uh, start with why. And once you have a really strong why, things begin to align itself and the multiplier effect begins happening, whereby it's no longer about your drive and impetus anymore. It, what happens is that people begin adding to it because they can quickly and easily articulate your why. And it's meaningful to them and it means something to them to be able to articulate it and share it with friends because the conversation dynamic has now become hey, we're now working with this company that's trying to drive technology growth in the Caribbean. They have created a platform that brings together some of the best enterprise companies and startups in the region. And these guys are the guys to work with, you know? And so that's the quick short narrative. The quick short narrative. We bring best startup companies, best enterprise companies in the region, and we are driving tech within the Caribbean. Generally, p 
people within Silicon Valley at these major companies don't have a direct focus on the Caribbean. One, because they don't have a relationship with a lot with directly with people that live here and operate here. And two, from a market perspective, the incentive isn't that strong. You know, the market is just really tiny. Um, six million English speaking people. Yeah. Interesting. So, so yeah. Interesting. Let me put you on the spot again. So with regards to the why, right? It's like a chicken and egg situation, I'm thinking, because is that looking for an opportunity and seeing a space and then creating your why, creating and then binding to your own why is, is, is the approach that you think most people take? Or is it that people should really genuinely have a, a, a burning desire from, from before they even realize that there is an opportunity to find a why and, or, or, or identify a why, their why, and then start to build out the opportunity? Is it opportunity first, then why? Or is it why first and then you seek the opportunity? What do you think about that? <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. Bro. No, no, no. Of course. Why drives the opportunity? You start with why and then the opportunities begin multiplying in itself. Like where we are now with Tech Beach, I didn't really think we we're going to be. Like a lot of the conversations that we're having with some of the big companies and with governments, that necessarily wasn't what I was thinking when I initially started by any means. I was just thinking we'd have this conference, I'd build some relationships and then I'll use those relationships for some companies I'm going to start again. And that's kind of where I was looking with it initially thinking, you know, I wasn't thinking too big and broad and wide with, with what the possibilities were. But having an initial why, opportunities begin to multiply on itself and you begin going in directions that you really didn't imagine. So... To come back to what my core foundational why is to be able to even begin seeing these opportunities and choosing choosing what opportunities I go after, my foundational why is simply this. I want to make tomorrow better than yesterday through the use of technology, applications, platforms. And so with that simple why, that cancels out the sort of projects that I get into. It gives a funnel for people to now think of me as the tech guy. And so those sort of projects and opportunities begin coming their way more so than any other opportunities. And it narrows my focus to begin going deep on a subject matter such that I could begin becoming the best at that subject matter, you know? And so my why was really driven from that thing of, hey, I want to use tech to make life better for people First in the Caribbean and anywhere in the world. Okay, so that said, if you look out one year, three year, five years, maybe even 10 years, what can we expect to envision as a landscape for not only Tech Beach, but for tech in the Caribbean as a whole? Wow. This is Koda Bill Gates famously gave, says something like this, uh, people overestimate what they could achieve in one year, but vastly underestimate what they could achieve in five. And generally, I don't like to give five-year projections on my own company per se. I like to just kind of think of things within one to two-year time spans, because as you gain more information, things can drastically change, especially within the technology space. <laughs> Yeah, Facebook could change the algorithm on you and so, and then, you know, Facebook is no longer the key thing you begin advertising on or, or you had to adjust in some way, you know, like, so, so no, tech changes so quickly and it's very, very unpredictable in that sense. You don't really want to project too long. But from a five year perspective, I think, um, within the Caribbean, we definitely want to see a greater uptake of more technology. That's just the goal. The goal is a greater uptake across as many sectors as, as as is possible. Within health, we want 
health tech to begin coming on stream such that simple things like patient moving from doctor to doctor is an easy transfer of, of their data such that you don't go to a doctor with frustration that boy you had to start back the same process and the doctor putting you back through the same process the last doctor put you through because this doctor now had to see the results and you know like simple like things like that to to the transportation industry a greater uptake of more ride sharing and transportation services to the tourism industry that people having a way greater smoother experience within its tourism industry um man like even our carnival industry like yeah we have so much advancements we can make within carnival through the utilization of tech so what's the key back then what, what would you say is the key back why, why are we so slow to adopt in, in, in the caribbean trinidad in particular somebody keep backs uh one experience at scale in the u.s what typically happens is that a guy would work at at with for one of these major tech startups and be able to quickly understand their processes at scale and then go out and be able to replicate that for themselves in some form or fashion right we don't have a leading tech company that people could go train gain experience at and then replicate it at scale you know great oil companies and so people could go Oman and Dubai and wherever else and you know and we ship in our petroleum engineers all over the world and we're some of the best petroleum engineers in the world and chemical engineers and that sort of thing because why you have industry that supported them to grow and develop but that isn't here and so we need to sort of artificially inseminate and create these things such that it would allow these new companies to begin gaining ex- short circuit experience uh, needed to build things at, at that kind of scale but on that note though i was having a discussion with someone and, and the, the idea that trinidad and tobago is a predominantly import markup and resell type of market or buy a franchise like most of the successful businesses do that right yeah. you have a few manufacturers a few creators locally do you think it's the same with tech though in that we just destined to be an importer of technology as opposed to a manufacturer of technology <laughs> I'd hope not, because the reality is that ideas aren't like bottled up in some sort of some sort of lab in Silicon Valley. Like things can be born and created almost anywhere. It is just the lack of ecosystem and infrastructure to support the growth. And so, once we focus on creating and building this ecosystem. things that you could not initially fathom will begin being burst out of it we give so much credence and focus to silicon valley but a lot of countries around the world are beginning to produce major tech winners there's this company that everybody utilizes spotify where is spotify from is it japan or something no spotify is a swedish company right a lot of major tech is coming out of new places that aren't silicon valley san francisco and why is that happening is because people are realizing that these are the infrastructural pieces that you need these are the incentives that you need to create and you'll begin seeing things coming out from it and so literally almost every major serious government is talking about having their own silicon valley of dubai silicon valley of south america and you know because they begin to understand what the infrastructural pieces are and you begin seeing innovation happening but just to push the point a little bit do like If you look at the diversification efforts we've been trying to have in Trinidad for the last few years, the idea is similar, right? They want us to to move away from oil and gas and create new industries that would help the country to sustain itself moving forward. And 
tech is like one of the few or IT they call it technology services. Yeah. It's so um overshadowed by the others, one, tourism and the and you know, the arts, etc. Mm-hmm. And then two, we generally just miles behind even in, in, in as compared to tourism and the drive. So to me it seems as if as we're a long way off and, and uh from maybe have a one of one or two success stories popping up like you guys would be one you know and a couple companies that might be doing interesting yeah. things but you know it, it, it seems as though it's a long way up i don't know it's, maybe it's a pessimistic outlook but um i don't know it just seems as though we have a lot of work to do that we the track record isn't too positive from the other types of diversification efforts yeah so from a trinidad perspective honestly sometimes it, it feels a bit demotivating because there's a lot more talk than action and that happens across every industry that is not, I guess, I don't know, like beneficial to the government per se, um, that not serving somebody else's interests, yep. you know? So while they say in, in tongue, focus on diversification efforts, in reality, a lot of the opportunities to seriously diversify and, and own or become serious players in spaces just coming and blowing past us. We have a very, very low cost of energy here. Why aren't we a manufacturer of renewables? Why aren't we a major solar manufacturer? Um, why aren't we leading or pushing research and development in the renewable spaces to become a leader in, in that space? We have some of the lowest cost of energy in the Western Hemisphere. So why aren't we capitalizing and utilizing that to become a serious manufacturer in our space? You know, like we jokey, you have as well now the rise of cryptocurrencies, which as well needs a significant amount of energy to produce Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies. Why isn't the government investing and taking the lead on becoming a leader in these spaces? You know, like we talk one talk, but, but jokey in, in reality. But that being said, I live in here, you know, like I, why is supposed exactly. to be, I just supposed to be pessimistic and just, just believe that we'll always be a shit old country. Well, Trump says so. <laughs> <laughs> now I think you're doing the right thing though. I think what I admire about you guys is that you guys always take your ideas and you take action. You're not just a, a couch debater. You're not just going on Facebook and on social media and just complaining and a bunch of very intellectually and very well-written paragraphs. <laughs> you are building your businesses. You're scaling it very quickly. Yeah. And you're implementing, executing. And I think that's what, that's what people should focus on doing instead of just saying, oh gosh, why the government do this? It's like my friend Hutch said in episode two, you have no excuse. Just start, just do it. What I like to is a, it's a, it's a unselfish effort to it. The Tech Beach Enterprise, for example, that, that is a genuine desire to see the tech space develop. Like, it's not about me making profit, which, you know, most people try to start. I mean, yes, there is a profit element, but because of the death of, of, of tech, tech type business and, and opportunity, you need something like that. You know, you need the, the international people. The same people we spoke about earlier who never left Trinidad. Imagine now they have opportunity to go just as, you know, a stone throw away and they seeing people from Twitter and, 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 you know, that's a big deal for them. It's like, that's the, that could be the spark that we, we spoke about earlier, right? So yeah. I appreciate that effort as well, man. So the thing is, we grew up in a different industry compared to our parents, a different time compared to our parents. I'll state in the obvious, but what I mean to say from that is that we have the ability to act way more globally from the onset and take on 
a lot more complex, bigger problems to serve bigger markets than our parents did within their time. In their time, literally, it was about having a shop that serves just your local marketplace and just being another player within your local space. And the few entrepreneurs who were blessed with a vision to think globally, like the Anthony Sapgas of the world, you know, who, well, he bought Carib, but, you know, pushed it to be a, a global brand and the SM Jalils of the world and, and that sort of thing in terms of manufacturing. These are the, the, the leaders. They're like very, very minuscule in that space. So generally, our parents and our families were just thinking, just serving this local need. We come from the perspective that, listen, the globe is our stage. Like I could literally be talking to somebody from any part of the planet now, like, and it happens in seconds, like, like, autom- like it's not even seconds, like it's automatic. I say, yo, somebody in China receives it immediately. You know, like it was, that was unfathomable in our parents' time. So now operating within that space, it is actually a form of enlightened self-interest because you know you'll benefit from it, but it is smarter to begin thinking of how do I begin serving the needs of as many people as possible, millions of people as possible versus serving this small need. And when you begin thinking of how can I serve so many people, how can I solve a problem for so many people, your whole mind shift is like, a massive, massive mind shift. You begin realizing like, whoa, this problem is way too big just for me. So you want to talk about it as much as possible. Our parents' time, they don't want to talk about their ideas because they're afraid somebody else is going to take it. Exactly. Our time, I want to share my idea as much as possible because I realize, brother, it's in me alone could, could do this thing. Everybody needs to win. Exactly, right? Right? So I need as many players to help me as possible. I want your feedback and your feedback. And, and we have a very much more open sort of perspective to it because the size of the problem that we're going after is so much bigger than what our parents initially would, would have been fathoming. And so that sort of mind frame then takes us to begin coming from the perspective of trying to serve a lot, a lot, a lot of different people. And the end result of serving a lot of people is what? Is that yes, fine, you'll, you'll eventually, you will eventually be paid. You'll be paid and you'll be paid well and you serve a million people and you charge them a dollar, you know, a month, you're making, you're making, you're making a million dollars a month times 12, you're making 12 million dollars, you know, like, so try and serve as many people as possible and making a positive impact, as you said, of course, you don't want to be a Pablo. Um, <laughs> and the results will come, the results will come. So, so that's the approach I take. The approach I take is forget me. All right? Because that's the next thing too. If you're just thinking about yourself, you're always going to be struggling to just take care of yourself. And that's a mind frame that my father gave me. My father was like, listen, if you want to live on, you think living on $10,000 is enough for you, aim to make $100,000. Such that that $10,000 that you wanted for yourself becomes insignificant. You know? Because now at that $100,000, you t- studying about paying staff and doing other things and going to the next $200,000, going to a million. That's what you begin thinking about. But if you study into just get a job and make a ten thousand a month or twenty thousand or or thirty thousand, you're just going to spend your whole life struggling to try to get to that because that's your whole goal, you know. So in order to solve the goal of thirty thousand dollars a month, you want to make aim to make three hundred thousand dollars a month. Once you're making that three hundred thousand, that thirty thousand is like a drop in the bucket. It becomes yeah ten percent. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So I wanna. Go back. I mean, this is really good. This is really good. But I want to go back to first. Yeah. Right? Because I feel like that was a big inflection point in your entrepreneurial journey. So just sum up first. How was it building that business? 
Because that business was fast rising. You guys were wearing new fancy suits. You had a <laughs> beautiful website. You had a nice app launch and everything. But what went wrong? Okay. All right. So we launched first the brand and what we we're about in 2013. And as I said before, we really focused on being like almost like overprepared for everything. So in launching a brand, we launched a brand positioning it to say, we launched a really nice video. We said, hey, this is the problem that we're solving and this is how we're looking to do it. And in launching that video, that in itself gains quite a bit of virality. And in doing that, we launched uh, this website to generate additional hype and buzz for the platform to say coming soon. And only when 100,000 people sign up to the site, we'll launch which in itself was interesting. And so we saw people sharing it a lot more just on that sort of hype positioning we created. Yeah. And we went way past that 100,000 by the time we were ready to launch. And in that period of time whereby we were now having like a mini launch event for the brand, we went to a couple different companies to help sponsor the event. Digicel being one of them in 2013. We went to them for sponsorship and then they agreed and went to them maybe like about two months before the event and then just within a month of the event they came back and asked to invest in our company which was not something that we thought would have happened before we even launched and so that was crazy so we didn't even initially think that the initial call was like real and we were like I'm not even sure what you mean by this. You know, like you got that you sell to invest in your company. How did that feel? You know, it was a it was a phenomenal feeling. Uh, both a phenomenal feeling and almost like walking in steps you outline for yourself. Because to be honest, in January of that year, we outlined in our plan that we are going to begin looking for investment from the two telecoms in in, in the region. Those were our two leaders of who we wanted to get investment from because it would have been a strategic investment from their perspective and from our perspective, you know, help us scale quickly and an application that drives data usage for them would be something as good, you know? And so that was in our plan. We just didn't expect the plan to happen literally like, yeah, to, to run up on us. We expected to have to go after it, but it ran up on us. We went to them for sponsorship. They say we want to invest. Um, and that, that drive came directly from their chairman. He was asking their board on their monthly board meeting, hey, who are some of the top technology companies in each of your countries? And board members were saying things like Facebook and YouTube. And he's like, no, 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 no. Tell me who are some of the homegrown technology companies. And nobody had anything to say except for Sasha Thompson, who at that time was the COO of Digicel in Trinidad. She happened to have our video and she played our video for, for the board and for the chairman, uh, Dennis O'Brien, and they liked it. And he's like, go find that company, do some research on them. And if they're good, invest in them. So fast forward one year later, the investment finally came through. Um, we got US for 25% of the company, uh, which is not something that is widely known, but it's something that we generally share in conversation. And, uh, yeah, we began running. We began running really, really quickly. So from that point, you guys became millionaires. <laughs> well, TT millionaires. <laughs> that happened before with Novas. <laughs> Take that, KV. Sorry. Podcast will. Put in place. <laughs> Put in your place. 
Um, but the funny thing though is that because we were so driven by growing our companies, we actually didn't focus on paying ourselves a lot. So personally, we didn't actually pay ourselves a lot, but we were focused on growing companies. So the companies that we were all shareholders of had a significant value. But my personal accounts wasn't really saying anything too much, quite frankly, which wasn't necessarily the best decision looking back at it. But you live and you learn. So yeah, so so that investment occurred and we began running. The goal really was to, we were able to raise uh, this amount of cash before launch, as they say, pre-revenue. How much more we'll be able to raise post-revenue at some really aggressive targets. Targets in terms of number of users on the platform, targets in terms of number of businesses on the platform, and how much revenue we're able to generate. And so within our first year, we were able to generate over 800,000 US in revenue. That was actually achieved within our first 10 months. And with that, we're now looking to significantly expand in a couple of ways. One, raise new capital to push our next level of growth. Because that level of growth came with burning through quite a significant amount of cash. And then begin growing through our partner, Digicel. And so they preloaded our application on all of their devices, etc. And unfortunately, at that same point in time where we're now pushing for a whole other level of growth, uh, the person in Digicel who was leading our investment, he went to a board meeting or he was supposed to make it a board meeting and he got a stroke. When he went in for testing the stroke, they realized he not only had a stroke, but he had cancer as well, which was crazy. And so we haven't spoken to him in actuality since that point, which was like uh, February of 2015. And without him being a main point person to really like drive growth and a partnership, the relationship from that point on just kind of like went into no man's land. Nobody owned it because with any digital framework they run a very tight ship so if it's not assigned to you nobody really has the bandwidth to take on more but that's odd though because they already had exposure of us yeah so somebody had to step in and monitor that yeah 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 um that eventually came at a much later point in time at that point in time a lot of the things that we needed to happen to sustain our growth not even growth just to sustain the company that were planned with them didn't happen and now that took us on a whole different trajectory uh, down. Um, and we had to send home like 45 staff and really figure out how do we begin running this business on a much reduced sort of, uh, yeah, on a much reduced cash, which wasn't something we forecasted for, wasn't something we were even remotely ready for. And at that point in time, then we needed to figure out, yeah, what are we going to do with this company? And that is the story there. So what did you decide to do? Because I know you, um, before we started recording, you told me there's a, you pivoted right, somehow. Yeah. So we hit our lowest low in uh, July of 2015 when we sent home effectively like everybody. And within that period of time, July 2015 to like December, I think the team, the four of us and whoever was left on our team, which was just like two people, we were just like mentally drained, mentally tired, you know. Um, from the from the four of us perspective, uh, we did an engineering degree, and so from school straight home, it was just like work, 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 work. So from two thousand and seven, two thousand and fifteen, for us, it was just like hardcore, like work and trying to build these things, these dreams that we've been running after. And we now hit a low point, and 
first wasn't isolated the impact of first affected our other company novas which was on its own uh, successful trajectory so both of them were hit at the same time because we couldn't give the energy that we needed to give to novas and we spent that six months really tra- like uh being introspective and reflecting and really trying to figure out where we go next and that's when my my boy approached me about tech beach at that point in time we began pivoting first to be more of a digital marketing agency taking a couple of the clients that we had relationships with they were saying like hey you guys did such a good job marketing first online like this is not our space is not our strength can you begin doing this for us and that was the inflection point there of now beginning to deliver these online marketing services to a few clients leading clients that we had and then begin building on that and so now we're in a, a much more comfortable and aggressive position with first in its like current state we changed up a lot a lot a lot with the company so you guys did a tech talk on <laughs> <laughs> yeah you remember you know where i'm going with this yeah of course you guys did a tech talk on harnessing the power of fear this is just after you you launched novus and first as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Leading on that and going back to your experience after first, after what had happened, where did you sell money kind of drying up and then you guys having to essentially restructure the whole business? Mm-hmm. Or would you say you harness the power of fear to go ahead and go, on, go into a new tech business, a new tech endeavor? Well, <laughs> um the the phase with first was real practical i had my rent to pay i had like old salaries to pay all these stuff like being really a mixture of extremely pissed to super sad and everything in between i had company related expenses you know like we had a whole lot a whole lot like literally like <laughs> I I I enter in in a, in a business sense like yeah you you piece out of front there for sure you know he's a big man now <laughs> he's a big man now right and you're like yeah. twenty six twenty seven at the time right exactly right yeah he's a big man now and so all these people that older than you that you hired and you're taking care of their families essentially you know so nobody really want to hear your sad story of what happened with you at any day in practical terms people want to take care of their family and what they have in front of them and so and so I'm not by any means mad at anybody who took it far left or or didn't take it at all and everything else in between I can understand what they're dealing with practical terms and yeah that was that's reality and that's some serious at that point in time for me it wasn't even fair at that point in time because we'd been through a bit even coming into this into in coming into it with first this was just like the heaviest at that point in time it was more like just being tired and and seeing all these things and understanding that you can't stop you can't stop you need to push you need to drive you need to continue pushing on and you need to to figure these things out as quickly as possible and begin making progress from where you were from a lessons learned point of view, right? I mean, we understand that due to un- unforeseeable circumstances, yeah. the digital relationship would have had some strain. But from an operational perspective, like, you know, what would you say was the biggest, maybe, lesson or, or mistake you guys made along the way that would have also kind of led towards 
the eventual decline because the money drying up. I know that would be a big, a big challenge, but maybe from a from a more day to day actual inside the company perspective, you know, are, are you willing to share any any oh, yeah, lessons man. that you would have sure, sure, picked up sure, along like, the way there? Generally, share these things like one on one conversations with people or one to a few. Now down on this show here, I feel like it's going to be to millions of people. Trillions. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast will. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, man, we made so many mistakes. So many mistakes. It's, it's crazy. If I were to start with somebody big, with the biggest one is is that we didn't hedge our hedge ourselves from the perspective that everything really centered around growing with this one company and and they were our one major mentor and one investor and one partner and one client. Like it was just so centered around them that it, it really, yeah, it was just all your red flags looking at it as an investor coming in or any smart business person, you know? So hedging your risk from that perspective is one. Two, operationally in terms of scaling team and staff and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was, that was, a uh, that was horrible that was horrible too quick your skill that was horrible that was horrible choices of higher were bad or what ways I wouldn't say the choices of higher were bad like I think we had a really really good team like I liked everyone in the team and I think everyone was really really smart in their own ways uh, in their own specific skill sets from our sales team to the marketing team to the guys who were working on product development to human resource like yeah we had a real good team of people but for the most part, they just weren't equipped for the digital space. You know, like there isn't like anybody that nobody came from like a, a Google or a, or a Facebook or anything like that. So everybody came from like a Guardian or, you know, like or Massey or Massey, you know, like right. so, so or agency in some way. So they didn't really have the experience equipped to help us innovate and really like get like, like grow from there. And we ourselves didn't have that experience. We now figuring things out. So no, the team was, was as best as it could have been. Um, but the, the amount of the team was, was, was significant. And uh, I guess from that perspective, we kind of scaled up quickly because we felt as though we we're going after like a really big market and going after the Caribbean and we needed strong support home here locally. And we're just super aggressive in every single thing and not being conservative really in, in our forecasts at all. And so I think the greatest lesson is a certain level of conservatism, which definitely put into, into chef made. The cost of start chef made was sig- like miles less. The marketing results that we're seeing from it is cost a lot less than what we would have spent there. The team structure is, is one that, yeah, a lot lower. Like we just learned so much from it. We, we set up m- mentors as well that spread our uh, different skill sets. So we have one really good mentor that helped us, especially in the starting stages that worked at a similar company in San Francisco. And she helped us structure the whole company in the beginning and understand the business model coming out. And then we had other mentors from marketing perspective that work at Facebook and Twitter and that sort of thing. And like we leveraged a lot of the relationships we would have built to really get this product that we have here now that is good, but miles away from where we want it to be. But the cost structure is significantly different to what we initially started with first. So in a way, the investment might have done more harm than good you know in terms of how you approach the company getting it off the ground getting the ramped up i know on one hand you have to be aggressive you're trying to go big you're trying to think global but i guess you know maybe lack of experience in terms of you have this chunk of money let's just go hard and you know it might have actually backfired you think or 
Yeah, so I think it was not only even from our end as well. I think from the investor end, them being inexperienced in investing in these types of companies, they're really centered on driving revenue, literally day one of your Audi gates and conversation is, all right, so you have this money and how much money you make it now, how much money you make it now, how much money you make it now. And no matter really how much we try and drive our product development conversation and how much we're investing in developing product to enable us to scale at some later point in time, that really wasn't uh, wasn't too exciting for them. Yeah, about that. Yeah. What was the revenue model for first though? I mean, it was an advertising re- model. It was real simple. People paid a monthly subscription of like relatively small fees between $500 and I think the highest was like 2000 I think we even had like a little less than 500 too. And they would get certain types of advertising that we would have garnered. So first was uh, increased search ranking on a platform based on your keywords. Next as well, because we had a real large email database, they would also get the benefits of being a part of our weekly email cycle and that sort of thing. And that was the model then. So they paid this sort of subscription fee to reach a certain audience that was interested in our content and and yeah that's how we generated revenue all right so all that said all that noted for people out there who want to start their own businesses but they're kind of being handicapped or being restricted by fear right fear of disappointment fear of failure this general fear of the unknown yeah how do we how do they how do we all how do we all get past that how do we how do you make fair our friend, like you said in your TED Talk, and just go ahead and be bold and take that action? How do we look at fair? Yeah. So how do we look at fair? So I guess like, from my perspective, I think the bottom line is just start. Just start. I think that Amen. should be a mantra, you know, just start. If you have that as your mantra, you'll begin realizing that you're going to be miles away from where you were within three months, within six months, within a year. And once you begin on a path, you're going <laughs> to, yeah, the world is real funny. Life is real funny. From the perspective that you could never connect the dots looking forward, you know, and as a Steve Jobs quote, but things only make sense looking back. And so it's real important to just begin because once you begin, Opportunities begin funneling and coming your way that you could have never forecasted would have come. And you sitting down there and seeing all the obstacles, but you're not seeing all the opportunities because you can't. The reality is that you can't see all the opportunities because these opportunities are not going to come from the ways that you think that they're going to come, you know? And so you just need to continuously focus on making progress. So once you just start, then your next mantra is just make progress. All right. And so you're going to stumble all the time. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do things that are just not ideal. Just make progress. Just make progress. That's your next mantra once you start. No, I'm no scientist, right? But I do look at a lot of Google, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's a Google scientist. <laughs> but what I, what I learned from somebody's speech, somebody who's good in science, his speech, is that fear and excitement your body responds to fear and excitement in a similar way. So it's about how your brain perceives it. Yeah. Right? So just like you said, there's so many obstacles. There could be so many opportunities. So if you yeah. think of it in that way, I think <laughs> that way you kind of get more excitement. You start to feel a lot more fire to actually get started and 
implement like both of you guys have done uh, yeah indeed 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 you could use fear productively for sure you could use fear to drive you to productive outcomes from the perspective that you're utilizing that same excitement that same energy to not have you be crippled and have inaction but have you drive yourself to action and to make things happen so now i i don't see it so much as as fair anymore from my perspective i see it now more so as as i said in in, in the talk uh productive paranoia whereby i'm never fully comfortable and i'm always uncomfortable when things seem too easy or too comfortable you know like something is not going right and so i'm constantly looking for ways that we can be better and ways that we are lapsing that we're not seeing one thing that i'm not worried about is knowing the things that we're not good at what i'm most worried about and most fearful of is not knowing the things that we're not good at well said i think that's a good place to wrap honestly wise words man. yeah that, that i want to wrap right there this episode was really long but i don't care i think it was worth every minute podcast well it is worth every minute i think you would agree how long we talk whoa all right <laughs> felt like a 15 20 felt like a 15 20 right <laughs> some hard editing work to do boy uh, i might just leave it just like this and <laughs> everything everything <laughs> seems to be. sound great <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 i'm good Perfect. all right so um kyle thanks a lot for coming through and sharing your story sharing your lessons sharing your advice is there anything we haven't covered that you want to leave us with I don't necessarily want to leave you with anything that I haven't already said, quite frankly. I feel like I talk a ton load. So I think the last words, as you said there, was for me, some of the most impactful. The last uh, conversation on uh, productive paranoia and just starting and making progress. These are the things that I consistently live by. Trying to have a strong bias to action, always focusing on progress, trying to always figure out the things that I don't know. And not just the things that I know that I don't know, because that's easier because you could consistently work on that. Trying to always figure out the things that I actively don't know. So it's always really important to keep yourself open to feedback and genuinely being curious about life. So I think we covered some of my strongest uh, mantras in, in the end there. Great. So where can we find you? <laughs> yeah, you can send my WhatsApp. I don't mind. Uh, 356777. Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, I, I pretty open. I pretty open with, with those things. Like, if you need support or help in some way, something, some project they're working on, generally speaking, I'm more than willing to lend a hand or point in a direction. Or you could add me on Instagram or follow me on Instagram, Kyle Maloney underscore F1. Add F1 stands for first, F1 RST. Or add me on LinkedIn or Facebook with my name. That's good to go. All right. Great podcast. Well, there you have it. If you are not subscribed to Caribbean Power Lunch, you need to get onto caribbeanpowerlunch.com slash subscribe. Listen to us in your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. Usei, thank you very much for coming through again, my yeah, brother. Thanks for the invite, boy. This was a great session. We need to have a, a quick bite, you know. We need to have a 20-minute discussion right. sometime to discuss your, your new projects just to kind of catch up with you and how things are going with you and stuff. No problem, no problem. I think people will be very interested in that all right podcast will cabin studios we are out